suburban eastern Australia, an environment that has, over time, evolved some extraordinarily unique groups of Homo sapiens. But today, we observe a small tribe akin to a group of meerkats that gather together atop a small mound to watch, question, and discuss the current events of their city, their country, and their world at large. Let's listen keenly and observe this group fondly known as the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Yes, welcome back, dear listener. Episode 245 of the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove podcast. And if you're watching on the live stream, you've got a live image of me, but Scott and Paul, I've just got a still picture. But fear not, they are with us. So I've got their audio, but I don't have their video. But uh, see, the only moving picture you'll see is my ugly mug, and you'll get to see the chat room as well, hopefully. So uh, welcome aboard. If this is the first time you've joined us, this is an Australian podcast where for the last four and a half years, we've talked about news and politics, sex and religion, and we've morphed into, over that time, a kind of a study of society type of podcast where we're looking at the larger trends in our society and looking for changes. Initially, we were talking about religion then we've really moved into politics, free speech, libertarianism, ethics, uh, issues like that. And lo and behold, after two and a f- 245 episodes, we end up with one of the most cataclysmic events in human history, it seems. So I'm Trevor, the Iron Fist. With, with me, uh, as always, is Scott the Velvet Glove. Scott, are you there? I'm here. How are you, Trevor? G'day, Paul. G'day, listeners. And Paul, you're with us as well. Yes, but I don't like that still you've got of me on the screen. <laughs> not, not very flattering. But greetings, Earthlings. I was, I was. It was the material I had to work with, Paul. That was the problem. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Anyway, okay. d- dear listener, uh, this is a little bit tricky for us because none of us can see each other. Uh, well, I can't see the guys. They can kind of see me. I'm looking at other stuff. Uh, uh, if you're in the chat room, say hello and let us know that you're there. It looks like there's eight of you there, so just say hello so we can see you. And, of course, we're going to talk about uh, the coronavirus and the impact that it is having on our society and really – what massive changes is this going to cause in, you know, it's amazing how quickly it has brought about discussions that were completely off the table only two, three weeks ago. And we'll talk about it later, but um, the most right-wing newspaper on the planet, The Australian, is, is suddenly contemplating socialist ideas and admitting the demise of capitalism. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that. So... It is amazing how quickly this has turned around. Thank you, Wheat Watcher, David, Anne and Greg, who have chimed in to say they're there. Scott and Paul, we haven't had a chance to speak. Dear listener, we actually don't speak much during the week. We send each other the odd message, but we don't really converse much. So it's all fresh. Uh, Scott, you want to lead off with your thoughts on on what's happened to this planet in the last seven days? (laughs) Well... It's amazing how quickly it has morphed into something that I think you described as a cataclysmic event. And I think that's probably the um, right way to put it is it certainly appears to be cataclysmic. It's morphed out of something that, you know, we were just sort of hearing a little bit about 
when it first happened. You know, we heard that something was going on in China, but then it just very quickly evolved into this runaway bloody freight train that has impacted me even up here in regional Queensland where, you know, I think there's been one person that's been reported with the coronavirus in our local area mm-hmm. that, um, you know, we can't even go out and buy steak anymore. We can't go out to a, a restaurant because they're all closed. Yep. Um, now, you know, <laughs> on the bright side, the churches and synagogues and mosques have had to close too. Mm. But, you know, um, I can't go out for a beer anymore. I've got to have a beer at home. Mm. So cheers. Mm. Um, the other thing is it has um, it has really taught me how to manage a team that aren't in front of me. So, you know, I'm in contact every day with um, my staff member whether he's in the office or out of the office because we're on a situation where if one of us is in the office, the other one's out of the office so that we're not actually potentially infecting one another. Yeah, there's a lot of team A and team B sort of happening in in workplaces at the moment. Absolutely, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Seems to have been the Now, the other thing is the better half was saying – well, the other thing is the better half said that um, the buses are going into the city empty but every bastard's in their car now driving into the office because they don't want to be on the bus getting infected by anyone else. Yeah. Yep. You know, so... Mm. Yeah. That's a hell of a mess too. So yep. I think that um, one of the habits we're going to have to break is once this is all over, once we've got a vaccine, we're going to have to break the habit of driving ourselves to and from work. Yep. That's the first bad habit we've got to break. Of the good habits we have developed learning to manage your team remotely and that sort of stuff, I think that could become very much a a fixture of our lives going forward because I quite enjoy my days working from home. Yeah. But but there'll be lots of changes. I didn't shave this morning. Yeah. There'll be lots of changes like that. But um, I'm sensing some of the things we've been talking about in the last six to 12 months where um, – let me just turn that off. Uh, Let me just – some of the things we've been talking about in the last six to 12 months where we've been promoting things like universal basic income or a wealth tax or uh, other sort of left-wing sort of ideas. And uh, there's suddenly people are going to be talking about them like uh, there was no money to do stuff according to the government. You couldn't raise New Start, for example. But all of a sudden they found the money like um, – the sort of spending on on social programs that this conservative government is now prepared to do is a, a complete change of direction for them that that they've had to admit to. So that, that's the thing that that interests me. Um, I'll just quote a bit. There was a, a guy, Richard Dennis, in the Saturday paper. He said, "For decades, Australians have been sold on an imagined poverty. We've been told we need to rein in government spending. That if we want to spend more on health or education, we need to spend less on the." age, pension or childcare. But the reality is that if we had a bigger public sector today, we would be better prepared to weather the health and economic crisis triggered by the coronavirus. Hopefully by the time we come through this, we will have learnt that lesson once and for all because nobody thinks the market is the best place to tackle the coronavirus. Nobody thinks government should step back and let the private sector step in. So one of the first casualties of COVID-19 in Australia is the neoliberal rhetoric about government spending 
being a cost to the economy. So just as the bushfires changed Australia's views on climate change and the importance of uh, investing in emergency services, uh, COVID-19 will change Australians' attitudes towards spending on the public health system and almost inevitably public spending in general. I think that's the case. I think people are going to be able to say, well, the taxes are such because we need those um, intensive care beds that were missing during the coronavirus. We need the health staff that were missing. We need public servants in an office somewhere to answer the phone so when there is a crisis and you want to get onto a new start allowance because you've never dealt with welfare before, uh, there's somebody there who knows the system who can answer your call. Um, that that there are people in place to plan for pandemics. That this, you know, we are witnessing America where their, you know, public service has been whittled to the bone. Ours has been whittled away in the last 30 years, but it's still in a better state than theirs. And people at the end of this are going to be able to say, there's actually a value in the public service. We need to be uh, spending money in that area. To me, over the last seven days, that's one of the crucial things that's that's going to come out of this. Paul, have you noticed anything? Do you disagree? Or what do you reckon? I pretty much agree with what you've said. Um, not sure about uh, whether it will change the government's thinking about welfare in the long term. I think they see that it's obviously necessary to assist people in the short term because otherwise there'll be literally the situation they have in Los Angeles at the moment, which is little villages of tent dwellers in every public park and mm. under, you know, motorway over, over mm. uh, what do you call them? Overpasses. Mm. Overpasses, that's it. Mm. Um, and I guess the Australian government doesn't want to see that happening. There would yeah. be a lot of... Uh, very big questions asked about any government that allowed that to happen. Mm. But we we often on the podcast talk about the short-term memories of voters. I think the government will have a very short-term memory about the need to assist uh, people who need it after this blows over. I think, you know, uh, yeah. Uh, this, and and they've, they've indicated it's a short-term measure. This particular government, yes. I think the public in general will start to recognise, although... In the chat room, David says, Trev, I'm a public servant and I can say with absolute certainty we don't need more of them, that is, more public servants. We need better public servants who don't waste scarce resources. Well, David, public servants include nurses and doctors and right at this moment nobody is saying <laughs> that we don't need more of them except for you. And, you know, the... the um, the system crashed for Centrelink for people trying to register. I don't know if it's called Centrelink now, but whatever it's called for unemployment benefits, it crashed um, because probably some high-paid consultant from, uh, you know, some consultancy group like Deloitte or McKinsey or whatever uh, came in and did a job and said, well, there you go, that'll be enough and we'll disappear because we don't have to live with the problem that might come about. And, of course, when a crunch comes like this, you know, it fails. Um, we don't have – you know, I would have liked a few more public servants available when that cruise ship pulled into Sydney Harbour and discharged all those people. Like somebody to test their temperature would have been really good. 
I would have liked some public servants to have had the time to think about ordering more test kits for a pandemic and having systems in place. Like, um, you know, it's it's just demonstrating if, if you don't want public servants, look at the American situation and then compare it to other countries where they do have a substantial public service and see which one does better and which one you'd rather live in. Like, I just think it's obvious. But um, so, uh, you know, at the moment, one of the things that happens well, at the public service... Italy is, is mm. Italy is not... Italy is not doing particularly well with this coronavirus. Mm. And they would have a larger public service than the Americans do. I don't think there's any doubt about that. But they clearly have stuffed up their response. Mm. Yeah. And so because they've yep. stuffed it, yep. they're going to suffer. Yep. See, I've got a mate who worked... Anyway, sorry about that. I've got a mate who worked uh, very, very high up in IT in Queensland Police. And... What he found was that they just didn't pay the IT people enough so they would um, move out and find a job in the private sector. So there was no corporate knowledge in the IT department and consequently outside contractors would be needed all the time who would overcharge and under-deliver and it was because public servants weren't paid enough. Like... Really, if you know that there is an ongoing job for somebody, then you should be employing them directly yourself. If you're going to outsource to contractors, then they're going to pay those people the wage you would have paid plus a profit margin. That's how private enterprise works. So you'll get the same person you would have got plus the profit margin that the contracting company asks for. That's how it works. And um, it just in certain jobs, you have to pay a high enough amount for people to to yeah. to stay in the public service. It's, it's a very good, very good point you make, Trevor. Because as you say, this this short term thinking results mm-hmm. in the loss of accumulated expertise. Yes, indeed, and corporate knowledge. And and now we're at the stage where, in the defence force, we don't even have people able. To, write, to contract with subcontractors, we have to hire subcontractors to write contracts with subcontractors. Like there's nothing left in the Defence Department. That's how bad it's got. You, so it doesn't save money. And, of course, there would be departments where there are people there who are no longer suitable for the job and it's hard to get them out. And by all means, create better mechanisms for firing people who are underperforming. But at the end of the day, you get better value when you employ directly than when you use uh, contractors because they're short-term, they give you a, a quick and dirty job and they disappear and don't have to deal with the consequences. So um, so anyway, um, just on um, – so as you know, dear listener, thanks to your patronage, I subscribe to various right-wing um, newspapers such as The Australian and – <laughs> I'm astounded at some of the articles that have appeared in The Australian. For example, Alan Kohler in writing in The Australian. So he's the guy you often see on the ABC um, doing the finance report. Uh, I won't have a bad word said against Alan Kohler. Right. He's, he's okay. always very entertaining. Yeah. So just to paraphrase yeah, what he yes. said in The Australian, he said, capitalism needs a rest and the state must step up. 
as economic depression seems guaranteed no matter what monetary or fiscal stimulus is applied, and governments everywhere will be forced to supply unlimited cash to stop people from dying of starvation or a lack of their usual medicines and therapies. Capitalist, small government economies like Australia's will be replaced for a while by a socialist one in which the state owns the means of production of money, that is. But all bets are off now. Something new has come along. Capitalism has to close for a while and the state has to step up. Then, from Macquarie Wealth Management, wrote an article in The Australian. Like Macquarie Wealth Management, I can't think of a more capitalist group, you know, pro-capitalist group in, to writing in a more pro-capitalist newspaper, wrote, Macquarie Wealth Management, the stockbroking, stockbroking arm of the beating heart of Australian capitalism. Macquarie Group has warned that conventional capitalism is dying and the world is headed for, quote, something that will be closer to a version of communism. We have been arguing that conventional capitalism is dying or at least mutating into something that will be closer to a version of communism, Macquarie analysts wrote. This transition will be marked by cross-currents and external shocks. Ultimately, a fusion of monetary and fiscal levers will lead to MMT-style policies effective nationalisation of capital, universal income guarantees and deep changes in work practice. I find that amazing that that is in the Australian newspaper. Um, I would have bet my house on it three weeks ago that you would never see such a thing. <laughs> and the wartime... Uh, Paul, you're cutting yeah, so, out. Us. Uh, clearly, the, the current crisis, the current crisis is to have uh, reassessments of a whole range of things. Mm, indeed. Can you not hear me? Uh, we can now. We got you at the end. You cut out a little bit, but you're you're back with us. So, right, that's sort of an, an overall picture of of just a sense of people's changing ideas about government, except for David in the chat room. But uh, David, I'm I'm not surprised. <laughs> But um, some other things that we should talk about, um, things have moved so quickly and it seems like the government is is behind all the time, uh, public opinion. And one of the things is school closures and, and a lockdown that, that seems inevitable now. We're seeing it all over the world in other Western countries where schools are closed and people are told stay at home and only the most essential services are are running it just it seems inconsistent to say to people that social distancing is so important and then let 3,000 kids run around together in a close contact at the same time with some you know adult and sometimes elderly teachers uh you know Australians could go look we don't know the science behind this we trust uh the experts they can recognise an inconsistency when they see one, and I think they recognise an inconsistency and say, "What? What the hell? How? How can you say on the one hand everybody stay apart, and on the other hand say uh, schools should still remain open?" So, you guys think they should stay open or should close? I think they should close. Scott and Paul, what do you think? I'm, I'm not at all sure because uh, 
have the scientists said that it's it's a good idea or not? Because there seems to be mixed messages coming on that one. Well, it's a it's a what the problem is is a conflict between wanting to maintain an economy <clears throat> on the one hand, yeah. and and protecting people on the other. But so they kept uh, schools open in Singapore, I believe. Y- yes, and, and but yeah, but Singapore Singapore had. Um, Singapore had people going around taking everyone's temperature on the street. You know, I saw pictures of people that were queued up for a bus and there was a guy walking along with one of those um, thermometer guns pointing them at the head, getting their temperature. So Singapore was very good at that. Yeah, they had a lot of other controls in place that that we don't have. But one of the arguments that they make is that um, doctors and nurses, if their kids are taken out of school, will be kept at home having to look after them. And uh, I saw on Alison's Facebook page, she said that uh, all of the doctors that she knew already had their kids at home because they didn't want their kids at school. So, um, and, and, and I think we can find, um, you know, we can have a skeleton staff operating in a few scattered schools and say, medical staff, you can send your kids to that school if, if your kids, uh, if, if you can't, um, look after them at home. Like we could offer something like that. Um, so uh, people see that inconsistency and say that just doesn't make sense. And here's the other thing about the argument that you see is that Scott Morrison and others uh, have been saying, look, anything that we do, we have to be prepared to do for six months. And otherwise, you know, we can't just do this for a month and then and then – reopen the schools because we'll have just, you know, started the problem again. And my answer to that is, well, the whole point of flattening the curve is to delay, uh, you know, mass infection. And we're at a point where we really don't know what's going to happen and we haven't been able to test people who don't show symptoms. And so what we could do is shut schools for four weeks and then as we get to the end of the four weeks, look at the infection rate in the community and say, you know what, uh, it's it's way out of control. It's too risky to reopen the schools. Or we might say, you know what, the infection rate has is, is flattened. We could start thinking about reopening schools. Like it's complete bullshit to say mm-hmm. whatever we do now, we have to do for six months. It's, I can't believe that the commentators uh, who are paid to question these people um, haven't made that point clear to them to say that that's nonsense. We can test this. We can do it for a month and see what happens and just be really sure that we're not spreading an enormous amount of infection through the schools. And so, you know, that would be my um, feelings on that. But um, Greg in the chat room says, I work in school camps and we've been completely shut down. The irony of being afraid of having 12 kids in the wilderness but not 2,000 kids in a school campus burns my brain. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and Matt says, uh, good point, Matt. The issue with the schooling will be if kids all go home, then not all parents who are in essential services can provide supervision during the day, e.g. nurses, power plant workers, water treatment facilities. Agreed. And so what I would say is surely we could have some uh, schools with a skeleton staff operating in some manner to look after kids whose parents are in essential services. So, um, 
Anne says there does seem to be some evidence suggesting that adults are more likely to give kids um, COVID-19 than vice versa. But, you know, the whole point is uh, kids don't show the symptoms. We don't know how much they're transferring the virus between themselves. There's a lot of adults in a school and in a situation where we don't know and the risk is so high, it just makes sense to stop and... um, get more test kits so that we could, for example, every kid who enters the school, we could test them to see if they've got a fever. And if they don't, well, they can come to school. You know, we could do things like that once we've had four or five weeks in order to gather the necessary resources. I just can't believe that. um, uh, And and so what we've got now, Scott and, and Paul, is uh, clearly Dan Andrews and Gladys Berejiklian are starting to run the country instead of Scott Morrison because he's been dead keen to keep the schools open and they have more or less said, well, we're making our own decisions here. So I think that's interesting that they're sort of starting to take over, leadership of the country. Indeed. Hmm. So, well, you know, I... I still look back at that photo when um, Morrison went in there to shake Berejiklian's hand. Mm-hmm. She looked horrified, mm. you yep. know, and that was just a, a complete lack of leadership on his part. Yep. So yeah. Morrison's argument also is on school closures is, uh, quote, I mean, kids could lose their entire year of school. That is what is at stake here. There are oh, very high-stake decisions and there's a lot of opinions flying around. Well, that's quoting the Prime Minister like, Kids missing one year of school is not the worst thing that can happen. Like in human history, we might say, oh, the it kids of 2020 be. all ended up, you know, repeating that year because of the coronavirus. Big deal. Well, you know, that's the whole point. If you, if you, were, to close the, if you were to close the schools for the whole year, mm. then you might have to repeat the year the next year. But that's no big deal. Exactly. You might have a situation that you might have – you might have only half the kids going off to prep that you would ordinarily take so that you can then ease them back into it. It's just a load of garbage. That and I can remember when I was at school, there were guys that took off for a 12-month period. Yes. Know, and they came yep. back in and they and they, took, they caught it up. Yep, yep. You know? Yep. So... Um so anyway, uh, it doesn't it doesn't seem an insurmountable problem, does it? No, it's not. No, the end. it's not an insurmountable problem. It might be a problem if you're in senior. If you're in senior, you might have a problem if you had to if you had to lose this whole six months that Morrison's talking about. That could be a problem for you. What, what, what's the but problem? Then, what's they, the problem? Like, how many kids take a gap year and then they end up doing a. Uh, you know, yeah, they're just a they 12 months a behind. Yeah, after they've completed, mm. up, yeah, after they've, com- after they've completed their, their schooling, they take a gap year, but they mm. don't take a gap year while they're at school. Yeah. Actually, Sue, in the chat I, room. I would for, for seniors, sorry, I, I was just going to say, I would assume that the, the people who are in charge of, um, you know, giving out uh, invitations to enrol in university, etc., would make some allowance for the, uh, the the problem that we had this year, and perhaps they would refer to those children's previous year of schoolwork mm. as a as a reference. Mm. Uh, Sue in the chat room said, "I spoke to a New South Wales teacher today, and they had been told that they are not allowed to teach any new content while this goes on." 
Well, that, make, well, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. That makes sense. Makes perfect sense. Yeah. And Matt Let's in freeze, freeze the kids in time. Yep. And Matt in the chat room uh, uh, said, by the same token, if the argument is that essential service workers are too important to have at home watching the kids, then by that logic they should be isolated at work and their kids handed over to the skeleton school crews so they don't go home from the petri dish of classrooms to infect their valuable parents. It's, that's, that's a very good point. It is a good point and it's not a perfect world. I think we should. I think we should essential service personnel into some sort of hole. Holding camp yeah. and keep them there for the duration. We could use that town in central Queensland that the, the uh, footballers were going to go and they don't need any more. Yeah, we could we could put more. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh so, okay, they're too important to have at home watching the kids. Then by that logic, they should be isolated at work. Well, I guess this is where if we had enough public servants on board, we could look at getting um, people to act as. Uh, nannies and carers and things like that um, for these um, for these uh, kids of essential services or assistance in some way, so that they can stay at home and be looked after by professional. Um, for example, if we're closing all of the um, all of the childcare centres uh, and whatever, we could we could see who's available to act as childcare for essential services if we had public servants available to do the calls and, and to make those arrangements. Um, I guess that's what we could look at doing, but we don't have the resources to do it. Yeah. Mm. Right. Um, as part of all this, um, Scott Morrison was very angry with uh, people on Bondi Beach and that they weren't – practicing appropriate social distancing and the problem is that um well uh again i was looking at a, a sort of a twitter a tweet on this where somebody said um mr hunt i think he's the health minister says what happened on bondo was unacceptable i say it looks pretty much like my classroom on any day last week except the bondi seems to have better hygiene resources <laughs> People get people can see inconsistency. They can see it um, a mile off. Yeah. So, um, I'm interested in the role of Dr. Norman Swan. So uh, Q&A has got a new... Um, have you been listening to Coronacast? No, I haven't been listening to that. I, I'm aware of it. I saw... I've seen him on different things yeah. and I saw him on Q&A. By the way, Q&A has improved dramatically with um, the removal of Tony Jones and that new guy. I think it's a lot better. Um Anyway, do you think? Really? I think it's a lot better with the new guy. But um, but anyway, just on Doctor Norman Swan. Watching it again. Um, he's, he's, we're kind of like in a war setting. Like you know, there's sort of war analogies with this coronavirus, and there's a tendency by this Labor opposition to not rock the boat and be seen as being unpatriotic, if you like. They're always bipartisan when it comes to defence. And it seems that they're always going to be bipartisan when it comes to the coronavirus. And and so what we've got is a lack of opposition to the government line. And I think Dr Norman Swan is performing a really crucial role as the devil's advocate to what the government's telling us because the opposition 
I haven't heard the opposition say one thing in in contrast to a government decision. Have you? No, no, I've not heard anything from them. As if the government's been running this rock show perfectly. They haven't they haven't come out to criticise anything. So it's left to guys like Dr Norman Swan to actually provide a counterpoint to this because of this weakness by Labor that they don't want to be seen as a snarky, unpatriotic opposition, it seems to me. So I think... Can you imagine if... Can you imagine if the tables were turned, the Labor, the Labor Party was in government right now and they had the opposition with someone like Tony Abbott lead? It would be a different story, wouldn't it? It would be a very different story. Yes, that, that's right. They'd be, be sniping from the sidelines the whole time. So, um, uh, Do you think the Labor Party well, well, should have so, so, by with Dr Norton? You're cutting out on me a bit there, Paul, but um, Paul comments on the chat room, That's all right. says, what would you expect them to object to? What government policies would Labor be objecting to? Well, whether schools should be open would be one thing, like uh, whether the people should have been left off the ship in uh, Sydney Harbour without any testing would be another one. Uh, uh why there wasn't test kits organised, why we haven't done enough testing. Uh, you know, you can't, I can't imagine that this government has been operating perfectly the whole time. Even Scott Morrison, when he said, you know, uh, we're going to close down everything starting from Monday, I'll see you at the footy. Like, there really wasn't any comment from the Labor opposition. So I would have thought there's plenty of things for... Labor to have objected to about government policies, particularly when it comes to uh, schools and, well, and and the testing regime, which at the moment is is restricted to people who have symptoms, who have been in contact with somebody who's been diagnosed with coronavirus. Like it, it, they're not testing the community at large. You know why not? Where are the test kits? Uh, I don't think there's enough um, uh, sort of objection by the opposition to what's been happening by the government. Sorry, Scott, go ahead. Um, I would have thought that, uh, you know, you, you mentioned the whole thing where you close everything down on Monday, but oh, by the way, I'm going to the footy. Mm. That would be something that um, Albanese could have picked up on and said, you're a fucking idiot if you reckon it's a good idea for anyone to go to the football. Mm. You know, now Albanese was apparently going to go to the football until one of his minders said, no, that's not a good idea. <laughs> that's right. So he he pulled out of the football, and then after that, Morrison pulled out of going to the football. Yeah. Now, clearly, these guys are getting someone in their ear, mm. but, you know, one would have thought that anyone with half a brain would realise that you wouldn't want to go to a, a stadium of 40,000 people. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Um, uh, Paul in the chat room says, um, I think Labor is giving the government enough rope. You don't want to test everybody because 99% of those tests will be wasted and you'd have to retest people. Well, one of the tests they seem to be doing overseas is these temperature tests, which seems a good start at least, where you've got crowds of people or... Absolutely, uh, yeah. You know, um, and, and would be an excellent starting point in a school, I would have thought, for example. Um, so that sort of testing we don't seem to be doing at least. So, um, 
Anyway, right. I would like to talk now about Morrison's stimulus package, which is really not a stimulus package, but just a, a, an attempt at survival package. And uh, the money that's being thrown into the economy to try and um, uh, sort things out. So um, uh, before I do that, Paul says, I thought temperature tests were inaccurate. Well, they might be, but but you you can then double-check and recheck and um, test people again. Okay, let's talk about stimulus package. I've got to ignore the chat room for a moment. Um, What do we have in the initial package? Uh, instant write-offs of equipment and accelerated depreciation if businesses want to buy equipment. The complete crap idea. As if businesses in this environment are going to be buying equipment, the only people in this environment who are buying equipment are the guys who make uh, ventilators um, for people. And they'd be buying them whether there was a tax credit involved or not. Like... That's something where the opposition could and have. Coffins. That's something where the opposition could have said, "You've got to be kidding! Three point nine billion on that. Let's use that money on something else, direct to the people." Um, the other thing is, uh, the government is going to tell you that they've um, they've uh, you know injected one hundred and ninety billion dollars in the economy as part of their efforts to uh, get things moving. Now, about $100 billion of that is simply quantitative easing by the Reserve Bank, where the Reserve Bank basically just uh, went to their computer, created a ledger, typed in $100 billion and started lending it really cheap to banks and said, here's some cheap money, go and lend it out cheap to people. Uh, that might help the big end of town... Um, in some way, but for the economy in general, that is doing nothing and it's not a cost to the government budget in any sense. It was the Reserve Bank printing some money and offering cheap money to uh, to our four big banks and say, here, go and, go and throw this cheap money around as best you can. So uh, a useless endeavour and, and not genuine spending of money. It was the Reserve Bank creating a loan to give to potentially businesses. What else is in their package? Loans to small and medium businesses with no repayments for six months. Well, your coffee shop, your takeaway shop, your small business who's just lost everything is not wanting to take out a loan at this stage. Like, do you understand anything about business? These people need a demand for their product before they will take up more loans. The other part of this thing is um, giving businesses money based on uh, sort of a bonus payment to businesses, and it's essentially giving a business a bonus equivalent to the tax that their employees pay is essentially what they're doing with some minimum amounts and some maximum amounts. So um, I'm going to give you an example of, of how it works, dear listener. So um, if you include part-time workers, the Australian median wage is about $1,000 and not, $1,019 per week, median wage in Australia. Compulsory super, add another $96. So the tax on a median wage is $168. 
So the government is saying to an employer, if you've got somebody on a median wage of 119 per week, we're going to give you $168 per week and we really hope that you keep employing that person at $1,019 per week. It's essentially, <laughs> it's a subsidy of 15%. So the government in its papers it's says... It's not going to work, is no. it? No, the government says this measure will benefit around 690,000 businesses employing around 7.8 million people and around 30,000 not-for-profits. So based on those figures, the average business targeted by this employs an average of 10.8 people. So the average business will get 10.8 times $168, which is $1,800 per week, if it keeps paying the wages of $12,000 per week with no customers and potentially a business actually closed because they're not allowed to trade. Why would anybody continue paying wages of $12,000 per week just to get $1,800 per week, a subsidy of 15%? No, nobody's going to do it. That's not a subsidy. That's not. You'd have to ask. You'd have, You'd to, have ask? to ask if our treasurer has. You're cutting out on me there, Paul. You'd have to ask if our treasurer what? Oh, well. You'd have to give it out for math whatsoever. Yeah. So, um, so the, you know, um, who would do that if their businesses have crashed or they've been forced to close? So, um, so... What the government is actually doing as well is it's basing these payments on the March 2020 BAS statement that a business lodges. So then it doesn't matter what happens after that March BAS statement. So if you've sacked all of your employees, all of the calculations for the next six months are based on that March BAS statement. There is no obligation on the employer to keep paying people. It's just a hope by the government that they will. Meanwhile, in the UK, the government has offered to pay 80% of employee wages, provided they are retained in employment. That's the difference. So Australia is offering a 15% subsidy and not even checking whether you... Um, keep employing these people. It just is based on March and will continue. Uh, that's worth six months. Meanwhile, in the UK, uh, they'll pay 80% if you keep employing people. Um, it's just a joke by this government. Which one do you think is going to work? Exactly. Well, I've, I would have thought the UK one would work. Yeah. You know, it's just – and with all those examples you've just been through, Trevor, I honestly believe the government would be better off handing the money out to individuals. And they ought to be um, – you know, they ought, to, they ought to give the money to the individual taxpayers like ourselves, and then they should also go to our bosses and that sort of stuff and say, well, you're going to have to close this for six months, therefore you're going to miss out on this amount of profit – Here's the amount of pro here's eighty percent of the profits that you would have made had you have been in business for that six months. Yeah, you know, and I also believe that. that um, oh, sorry, I can read it. No, I'll let you 
I'm not going to steal your thunder. Oh, okay, it. yep. So I just had a, a, a copy of something from Sally McManus, who's one of the uh, union sort of people, and she said, around the world, how much do employers get for keeping on a worker um, earning $1,000? So in the UK, the employer gets 800 um, I think Sweden is 750 New Zealand is 585 and Australia 169 So uh, hmm. that's the difference here. It's, it's a joke for them to say, oh, this is designed to help businesses keep employing people. It's just a... It's just a, a sweetener for business to say, here's some money, sorry your business crashed, and it'll do nothing else than that. Um, uh, and, you know, so many businesses will take that money and say, well, that's going to help pay for some of the losses I've incurred and none of it will find its way to employees. So, so, uh, so people need to understand the mathematics. So, Trevor, if you compare the response... If you compare the response of this government to this crisis uh, with the response of the Labor government to the GFC, which one do you think was more effective and and, and better thought through? To, to me, um, the money handed out by the Rudd government was either direct to people, um, you know, ordinary Australians in a cash payment, or it was a payment to business provided they built something. Yes. So... Sure, there were payments to businesses, but they actually had yeah. to install pink bats or install a um, or build a school building or do something with the they money. They had to do something. They couldn't just with keep the money. the money in their pocket. Yeah. So to me, that's that's a, that's a right. big difference. Yep. Um, so uh, in the chat room, they're talking about this. Uh, you can't actually start up a new company and claim some of this money with a dodgy BAS statement because it's sort of you had to have been registered as a BAS lodger at some point a few weeks ago in order to qualify for this. So you, for those of you out there thinking of quickly yeah. whipping up a, a, shelf co- a shell company and, and creating a, a massive employment debt uh, and then c- claiming a cash credit from the government, um, you had to have thought of that beforehand. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Scott. Just on if we can go back to the um, idea of lending money to businesses and not having them having and with no repayments for six months. Yep. That probably makes sense on the other side of the crisis. Yes. When yes. You know, if it's if it's a V-shaped crisis where we're going to go down quickly and we're going to come back up quickly, when we're coming back up, that's the time to actually hand out these loans to people that they don't have to make repayments on for six months, because that would then get businesses off the ground. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So, um, just to give you an idea of how hard-hearted these people are, I was watching um, <laughs> Mad as Hell. Uh, the other night, and they played a clip about uh, Christian Porter. So this is Christian Porter talking about casual workers. I'll just play some of that now. About this comment from Industrial Relations Minister Christian Porter when he was asked uh, how casual workers would cope if asked to self-quarantine. Many people would have already made provisions for that because, of course, the purpose of casual employment is that you're paid extra in lieu of those types of entitlements. So the government couldn't have foreseen how the coronavirus would affect their budget, but Chad JB Hi-Fi would have, and he would have put aside a little extra from his pay to, say, last three to six months without work. (laughs) (laughs) 
I, I think they put Christian Porter up to that just for the uh, the comedy of it. These, he's a complete tool, isn't he? Just so hard-hearted to say, oh, you guys were getting more than a full-time employees per hour, so you would have been saving the extra money for a rainy day like this. Most people are casual because they're on twenty to thirty hours a week. Most people are casual because they can't get full time (sighs) because people want them casual so that they can put them off quickly, Um, and then uh, to suggest to suggest casual by choice on the whole. Yes, and then to suggest that with all that excess money that they had swimming around, they were putting it away in a a separate bank account uh, for a rainy day like this. You just have to say you arseholes, you complete arseholes for just suggesting that. So um, there we go. Right. Other news we've had around this. Um, church services were cancelled quite early, you'd have to say, in this like You'd have oh, to give yes. it to the church groups that they were kind of slightly ahead of the, the ball game in terms of cancelling their events. So full credit to them for that. None of them were really seeming to put up too much of a fight on that. But um, the ones who did put up a fight were the footballers. So it's incredible that the AFL and the NRL... But it all showed... Paul, are you still there? Hey, hey Paul, what you're going to have to do is yes, turn... Can you hear me? Yeah, you're, you're cutting out, Paul. Yeah. Can you turn your video off if you're using it? Because uh, we're not getting your video anyway. So turn your video camera off and that might help with your... Um, okay. With your audio, dear listener, Paul lives in a bunker where is that better? Yeah, that seems better now. So, sorry, go ahead, Paul. Okay, I was I was just going to say uh, one one of the few positives in this coronavirus uh, crisis is the the mass public admission by church authorities that their religion gives no protection. What's However, to worshippers, to believers, to followers of any description or type, their religion is totally hollow, you know, and some of the statements from church leaders are hilarious. Um, From the Catholic Church, please be assured that any Catholic who contracts COVID-19 will, as far as possible, be assisted by our clergy with the sacraments and other pastoral care. A lot of good that'll do them. And the Lebanese Muslim Association uh, uh, announced the decision to temporarily suspend activities was based on one of the fundamental principles of Islam to preserve human life. Yes. I mean... But at all other times, these people think that God is looking down at them during the service and offering them special favours and applauding their efforts and and... Surely, if he was doing that, he wouldn't be allowing a virus to. It's, in, in, it's mad. Yes. Well, it is. Um, yeah, but it it shows just the pure hollowness hollowness of their religion. Yeah. That they they offer protection and love and care of the the sky fairy, whichever sky fairy they're following, and in times like this, they they're forced to publicly admit that there is no protection offered whatsoever. Well, it really shows, um, Paul, what the true religion of Australia is, that football games continued long, well after the, uh, the church <laughs> services stopped. So that's, really? that's where priorities are. Yeah. Um, I, I just don't understand. I do understand the football leagues, uh, codes, but 
Honestly, this is their big opportunity. They've reached a point where they're paying players way too much and they needed a reset on the game and they should have been looking at this and going, oh, here's our chance. We can actually uh, start afresh. All, all bets are off and instead of these players getting a million dollars a season, uh, they'll get 200 and we can actually make some money out of this game properly. So... Um, th- th- they should have rolled over as quickly as possible, but they put up a good fight. Um, but, uh, you know, the football codes are not going to disappear. Some clubs might, but the codes will come back, a game will come back, and players will be paid a lot less, um, which will probably be a good thing. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, the other part, actually, about that uh, quantitative easing before I forget was superannuation. Scott, do you think it's a good idea to let people access their superannuation in a crisis time like this? Uh, it probably isn't. Mm-hmm. It's probably not a very good idea because I think that, um, you know, there was, a, there was a thing I was looking at tonight on the news and that was just no, not the news. It was the project or something like that. They had a, um, a mock-up of those, uh, you know, industry super fund ads mm-hmm. where they said, you know, both these blokes work for uh, hospitality. One of them took their ten thousand dollars out, the other yeah. didn't, yeah. and they ended up going ahead to the retirement age. And that guy that didn't take the ten thousand dollars out was a hundred thousand dollars better off. Yeah, I think that. Um, yeah. Like $10,000 does sound very tempting right now, but you've got to understand you're going to miss out on a hell of a lot more when you're, when you're older. Yep. Here's an idea from Greg. You know, but, uh, yep. Scott, here's an idea from Greg in the chat room who says, can I take the money out of my super and then put it back at $1,000 a year and gain the $500 co-contribution? I think it could. So if he if he took the money Probably, out of super, yeah. if he took the money out of super and, and didn't spend it, but then put it back into super and get the co contribution from the government, that could be a plan. Greg, don't take um, financial advice from a podcast, but you might be onto something. Who knows? Let us let us know if that actually mm-hmm. works out. Because, dear listener, if you put after tax money into superannuation, the government will uh, will sort of um, match your contribution to some extent. So. Uh, that could work if you're a, a low if you're I, low believe, I believe you're, yeah, I believe yeah yes and I believe also that $10,000 comes out tax free too yeah so there you go odds says that so apparently it could, be, it could be a good thing to do apparently Scott Morrison is making a live announcement right now so if somebody's watching that at the same time or looking at their screen let us know if anything significant happens uh, shall we take bets is he going to announce the um, the uh, closing of schools. Anybody? I, I think he might. Anybody want to take a bet? Well, no? he might do that. He might actually. He might. He might actually move us onto a complete lockdown before yeah. too long, too. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, we we'll have to wait and see. Xanthi thinks that uh, Greg's proposal could be tax evasion, but anyway, we'll see. As I say, don't take. Uh, financial legal advice or relationship advice <laughs> from, from a podcast. From a podcast. Yes. Dear listener, I'm just going to interrupt the live broadcast with a special announcement, which is a big thank you to the patrons of the podcast. And what I'd like to do is take a little bit of time to uh, list them and thank them. 
I haven't done it in detail for a long time, and so here we go. Uh, some of these people have been with us. Uh, Sean has been with us since the 5th of February 2016. So thank you, Sean. Thank you, Janelle. Thank you, Craig. Thank you, John Townsend, Landon Hardbottom, Wayno Ayame, Alison C., Steve Shinners, Tony Wall, Jimmy Spud, Kane Birch, Bronwyn Ben, Matt J., Robert Whitby, Rod Harris, Palais, Manic Man, Dominic Damasi, Liam McMahon, Dave Ryland, Daniel Curtin, Harry Watson, Peter Gillespie, Captain Doomsday, Wheat Watcher, Andy Dowling, Murray Waper, Melinda, Adam Priest, Professor Dr. Dentist, Will Glenn Bell, yes, my brother, Craig S., Matthew, Alexander Allen, Paul Waper, I believe related to Murray Waper, Tom Doolan, Taro, Camille, Kim Brune, Donnie Darko, Clinton Riggs, Gavin S, Dire Straits 05, Tony Eels, yet another Pinker fan, Graham Hannigan, Mark Clark, Citizen Six, David Copley, Lloyd the Twelfth Man fan, Andrew Jackson, Yam Yam Blue, and a special shout out to our latest patron, Shane Ingram, who, despite the apocalyptic events of the coronavirus, decided last week was a good time to support our fair podcast and i really appreciate that shane because this is the kind of time when a lot of people might sort of drop off as patrons so thank you shane and uh for people who donate outside of patreon uh patreon via paypal thank you dean ken who looks like sammy J, was the beneficiary mr anderson corinne uh, matman beverly uh, beverly bossy and reed damien from redline digital who helped me out with um my uh, website stuff, uh, Wayne Seaman and Gerard Terry. And dear patrons, at this time, if any of you are in any financial difficulty at all, please stop um, patronising uh, the way you do. You need the money more than me. Having said that, if you're still employed and got, got a dollar or two and you're not really thinking about it when you buy a cup of coffee, I'm happy to keep getting the money because it means we can um, – build the show bigger and better and do other things and spend more time on it. And um, so, and it is uh, very, very much appreciated, but uh, definitely if you're in any sort of financial difficulty, then please um, you're just stop and uh, come back to us if you become more financially able to. So a big thank you to the patrons. If you're thinking of doing it, go to the website, ironfistvelvetglover.com.au. There's a donate link um, button there that you can click on and donations are very much appreciated. Thank you to the donors. Qantas. So the government gives the aviation industry $715 million, basically by waiving different fees that they're normally subject to. And the day after, Qantas stands down 20,000 workers. What do you reckon of that, Scott? Uh, it's not surprising that they did that. Mm. You know, it's um, it's bloody crook what they did. They took seven hundred. Well, they took a share of seven hundred and fifteen million dollars, and then stood down twenty thousand workers. Yep. And you know, they're beating their chest and carrying on about how they've they've redeployed them to coals and woolies and that sort of shit. Yep. But you know, they're going to get paid a shitload less at coals and woolies than what they would have done at Qantas. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. It's it is pretty crook. Yeah, here's the thing: we should be saying if we're going to offer seven hundred fifteen million, we should be taking equity. Like any bailout for any of these big corporations, absolutely. Yes, we should be saying okay. Uh, if seven hundred fifteen million is going to help, 
Uh, here it is. And by the way, we want that in shares. Thank you very much. Um, and you, uh, as a swap, like we should not be bailing out any of these companies or industries without taking uh, the value in shares. Um, surely we've learned that after the last financial crisis. And there should be well, other one conditions. Would have thought so. Because- uh, there should be other conditions like keep your workers employed, no executive bonuses for the next 10 years, no share buybacks, um, other things like and pay some tax, you know, other things like that. So um, if we're going to provide money, we, now's the time. We can put any strings on it that we like. We can say, well, here's the money, Do you, but it comes with these strings attached. Do you want it or not? So um, uh, that's what we should be doing. Right. Um, what else have we got here? Um, oh, um, a lot of people have been hoarding. Have you guys been stocking up on toilet paper, canned goods, um, pasta, rice, anything like that? I've been stocking up on gin. Right. No, I, I didn't. I didn't go out and hoard anything. It's. Um, <laughs> I felt very guilty though the other day because I was actually in the shops and I thought I'd better buy toilet paper. Mm. Then I got it home and I already had a pack in the, in the cupboard. So I thought to myself, Jesus Christ, I hope no one saw that. Mm. So anyway, it's uh, – on you, Scott. Shame. I yeah. know. It is very shameful that I did that. But, you know, it's just bloody ridiculous the way people are buying it. Yeah. I saw, an, I saw a tweet where some people who have been hoarding have been named and shamed. Uh, so just um, – I'll give you some of the names, uh-huh. if you like, um, of people who have been hoarding. Um Yes. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Gina Reinhardt, $17.4 billion. Uh, Harry Triggerbuff, $9.2 billion. <laughs> Frank Lowy, $5.9 billion. Anthony Pratt, he's been hoarding $5.5 billion. Andrew Forrest, $4.4 billion. I mean, people are angry with people hoarding toilet paper, but they're not angry at, uh, you know, Gina Reinhardt hoarding $17.4 billion that nobody else can use. Come on, people, get angry. Now is the time to get angry. Speaking of getting angry, uh, sorry, Scott, you want to say something? Well, if we want want to have a universal basic income, Mm -hmm. it's got to be paid for and it's going to have to be paid for by the big end of town. So I think now is the time to get angry. Now is the time to demand a universal basic income and also tell them you've got to go to Gina Reinhart for the money. That's because right. if she doesn't hand it over, then she's going to end up with a head on a spike. Yep. And, and this is the time where you can say Ooh. to the wealthy, you need a functioning society in order to sell your widgets. And if society breaks down, mm-hmm. your, your mine, your business, your whatever it is, becomes valueless um, in a time of crisis. As we will see in the United States of America, um, you know, if you are wealthy, super rich, you should see the value in paying some money to put in some safeguards so that the civilization doesn't collapse around you. So, you know, some of them might actually listen to that for a few minutes before selfishness kicks in, but who knows? But anyway, it's an, it's an argument for them. So, um, Yeah, absolutely. Last Wednesday, I was watching Scott Morrison give his a speech um, Wednesday last week, it's such a long time ago, and I think it was some of the initial restrictions that they were imposing. And I 
I had to admit to myself, he actually put on quite a performance. Like, he was very sort of calm and authoritative, and I thought he was quite impressive on the face of it. As much as I can't stand the guy, I thought he put on a good front. Um, <laughs> but as the week has gone on and on, and he just gives you the same shtick over and over again, it just wears thin. I reckon people see through him more. Um, and it's the same sort of bullshit um, that he keeps trotting out every time. So it will be interesting to see what other people thinks of it. Um, some headlines in the shovel. Uh, Scott Morrison defined as a non-essential service. Um, and also <laughs> another headline from the – or another piece from the shovel which said – um, imagine making stopping boats the centrepiece of your entire political platform for 10 years and then failing to stop the one boat that actually fucking mattered. <laughs> I like that one. Speaking about that one in Sydney Harbour, of course. So, ah, dear, oh, dear. Okay, more numbers. So last week I think we were just under 500 people in Australia had coronavirus. Yeah, do you remember that? It was like 490, something like that. Um and today, so, yeah. today, according to the ABC, we're up to 2,000. So we've quadrupled in uh, seven days. So this time next week, we'll look at that figure and hope that it is not 8,000. Um, who knows? Could be, hey? Mm-hmm. Um, Alison, a friend of the show uh, who's been on, she had a post on Facebook from a doctor friend of hers. And, um, again, we're talking about mathematics here. So 5 million Queenslanders. The chief medical officer has estimated 20% of us will be infected in the first wave. So that would be 1 million people infected. Of those 1 million, 20% will need hospitalised bed for a little bit of oxygen and support. So that's... 250,000, and 5% will need intensive care and mechanical ventilation. That's 50,000 people. Um, It's an old statistic, but it looks like Queensland only had 405 intensive care beds when we're talking about needing 50,000. So, And those beds on any given day are normally taken up with people with normal illnesses. So... um, it's hard to imagine that we are not going to have uh, some terrible results in our hospital ward if the maths stacks up, unfortunately. Um, right. I mentioned previously about the shock doctrine by Naomi Klein and her theory that in times of shock and this um, COVID-19, coronavirus is a perfect example of shock doctrine or a a shock to the system where people with an agenda can get things done while people are in a state of shock. And um, look, it seems that there are some left-wing opportunities. So we might be in a situation of a universal basic income sort of coming in by default in this. If we've got 30% unemployment and and in these critical days, the government might just be giving money to uh, almost anybody, um, it seems. But at the same time, from the right, uh, you'll now get people wanting right-wing ideology pushed through in this time of shock. And 
I mentioned before the Australian and their sort of acknowledgement by some of their writers that uh, capitalism will have to take a break for a while. But some of the writers in the Courier Mail have, have, some, have some other ideas. So Peter Gleeson in the Courier Mail was saying that these are desperate times calling for desperate measures and he's saying that there's far too much red tape for property developers and in this time when we need developers to get their stuff going so that we can employ people and make money, basically we've got to give the green light to run roughshod over conservation and environmental protocols. He says if they break the law during construction, whack them with multi-million dollar fines, but we need to trust them to get on with the job. The game has changed. Um, oh, for God's sake. Yeah. Uh, Doesn't he realise that if you don't have people buying and that sort of shit, that the developers are never going to turn the, they're never going to turn the first sort of ground? Yeah, they're going to wait for good times anyway. Exactly right. Um, exactly. But just the idea. In your show notes, tr- yeah. In your show notes, there was a reference to a particular development uh, near Cleveland. Yes. On Moreton Bay in southeast Queensland. Now, the, the the problem with that particular development was that it was going to carve off a piece of um, wetland that is listed with the the Global Authority on Protecting Wetlands for the purposes of, you know, having somewhere for migrating birds to actually land and recuperate and find food. Mm. Now, the developers don't give a damn about migrating birds, obviously, but southeast Queensland has some of the really the best and the most vital wetlands uh, on the east coast of Australia. And uh, some local developer says, well, to hell with the birds and, and to hell with the environment, and he's he he pay he gives donations to uh, various uh, political parties here, and the current state Labor government is under a lot of pressure to give in to this developer and let him carve off a, a piece of the wetlands to build his luxury uh, residential development. Yeah. Now he doesn't give a damn about the economy or about people. He just wants to make money out of it. And he wants to make money out of taking something that belongs to the whole country that is vital for the environment and will never will never be given back, of course. It'll just be taken and thanks very much. He'll make a profit out of it and to hell with the birds and everybody else. But, Paul, according to Peter Gleeson in the Courier-Mail, let's approve these projects now and get the ball rolling. Most developers want to do the yeah, right, right thing by the environment because it adds value to their project. Doing it the way we've <laughs> always done it, forcing developers to go through an antiquated, protracted and costly environmental impact assessment is not the way to go forward in the new coronavirus world. That, my friends, is exhibit A of of an attempt at shock doctrine neoliberal policy uh, by, by Peter Gleeson in the Courier-Mail. Um, Exhibit B in this, Robert Gottliebson in The Australian, and he says, we're being hammered by overseas investors as they dump our currency, our bonds and our shares. And he says the key reason for that is because Australia has an award wage structure. For God's sake. He honestly wrote an article saying that 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 
the world sold off our shares and our currency because they recognise that we've got award contracts that make our employees too expensive and we'll never get our what shit together after garbage. all this. That is... What absolute rubbish. Indeed. Indeed. There you go. I've got links of that in the show notes. It's... it's is there a really decent quote I can give you here? Uh, um, that, that's the essence of it. It's just, it's just complete crap, of course. Now, one thing that he is correct is that our dollar has plummeted and, um, dear listener, the stock market again is just keeps crashing even worse than it was before. And, yes, Paul, I know I was unsympathetic to your your superannuation <laughs> losses. And that was at a time when you'd really, maybe you'd lost sort of 20%, but at that point that really put you back where you were 18 months ago. But, okay, I now recognise that you're, you're back about eight years now, so that's, you know, it is it is tough. That's right. Yeah. Um, and I'll never get those years back. Yeah. Um, it's it's actually even worse than that. Like if It depends, Paul. Mm. If, it's, if it's a V-shape... If we go down quite quickly and come back up quite quickly, you could be back in the you could be back in the black in two years. Let's hope. Yeah. Yeah, but that that all depends on how quickly we get a, a vaccine and that sort of shit too. That's right, and get the economy ticking over again. Yeah. Exactly. It's a, a lot of. Yeah, I, look, I I fully expect, I fully expect that once the economy gets back, you know, into a, some sort of normalcy, the shares will, you know. Perhaps slow, more slowly, but they will go up again. It's going to take a Absolutely, while. Absolutely, they will. So uh, that's he was correct in talking about how our currency has uh, devalued. And basically, traditionally, dear listener, when there's a, a shock in the markets, what the people do is they sell their shares and try and put it in something that they see as being relatively risk-free for a while until things settle down. So often that was gold as one thing that was seen as a stable sort of thing to have. And the other one is, for some strange reason, U.S. Treasury bonds. Um, so a U.S. Treasury bond is where you're basically uh, um, giving money to the U.S. government and they give you an IOU and they say in 10 years' time, we'll, <laughs> we'll give you that money back uh, with some interest and that'll be U.S. dollars that we'll give you. So you give us... A million US dollars now, and in 10 years' time, we'll give you those million US dollars back plus maybe 3%, something like that. And that's seen as a safe harbour. If things are looking shaky, that's the place to go. And probably next week, we will have to have an in-depth discussion about currencies and to my mind, it's insanity to have any uh, idea that you would put money in the US government as a safe haven. It just, I know people think that way, but at some point you have to say to yourself, these guys just print as much of it as they want to at any time. It, it's all about faith. Money is an illusion. It's about faith. It's about systems that you can trust. And at some point, the world is going to run out of trust and faith in the US economy. And this could well be the time. So um, we can talk about the US 
very soon. Actually, when will I get up to it? Oh, it's way down the list. But um, that that is a, a country, uh, you know, we're going to have our problems here in Australia. But boy, oh boy, you would not want to be in the United States. You would not want to be in New York. Um, their healthcare system has got no chance of coping with what's going to happen and their social welfare net that is non-existent has no chance of helping people. I honestly think it's going to break down into some sort of anarchy where the National Guard and whatever will be flat out uh, from keeping people storming convenience stores to get food by the time this is all over. And um, the idea that, that, that US Treasury bonds is a safe harbour uh, just beggars belief in my mind. But we'll get on a currency fully uh, at a later stage. Right, before we uh, – next topic, what have I got here is um, – uh, gentlemen, Anzac Day has been cancelled. Do you normally go to Anzac Day? Yeah, it has been. I normally go to Anzac Day, yeah. Paul, do you normally go? I don't normally go, no. Mm. Regular listeners to this podcast would know that it's one of my um, one of my little key things that I moan about Anzac Day ceremonies and how religious they've become. So if you go to a typical Anzac Day ceremony, you'll be bombarded with a – uh, very often, a priest who will be, if not master of ceremonies, um, have plenty of opportunity to get up and say prayers and hymns and stuff during the service. You'll often get um, a Bible reading. You'll often get uh, two, three, sometimes four hymns um, praising God, all this as part of an Anzac Day ceremony, and it's driven me mad for years. Scott, you and for attest- good reason. Yeah, you will attest to that, Scott. So, Anzac Day ceremonies, is, yeah. Anzac Day ceremonies are going to be banned. And uh, somebody has suggested what you could do is at dawn you could get out onto your driveway where it meets your street and stand there for a little ceremony just on your own. Does that sound like a good idea? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm uh, go- you're right, uh, Paul. It's not a good idea. It could be improved. And do you know how it could be improved, <laughs> Paul? How? By, how? How at that it? moment, going to your podcast app and playing the special Iron Fist Velvet Glove Secular Anzac Day Ceremony while you stand That's there in your driveway. and. Okay, now we're making progress. We are going to record something in the next few weeks where we're basically going to be, of course, completely secular and have some readings and maybe some poems and some thoughts or whatever, and and we will publish that as a podcast somewhere uh, in the the lead-up to Anzac Day. Have that in your your app and either at dawn or whenever you wake up. Uh, at a quiet moment, you'll be able to sit and or stand at attention or whatever you want to do and uh, listen to an Anzac Day ceremony. So, good idea or not? Maybe. Maybe. I think it's a good idea. Show more enthusiasm, Scott. You're in the middle of yawning as he, as he gave that. I'm in the middle of yawning, sort of, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's I'm a good just, idea. Okay, so it's going to happen. I'm just not sure how people standing by themselves in their, in their driveways 
this kind of works. Well, well, they're just listening. They're listening to it. They're listening to our podcast. Yeah. Um, so that, that's that's the idea, dear listener. If you've got a piece of poetry or something that you think would be um, a uh, a suitable piece to include in it, let me know. And if you'd like to record something, let me know. If you want to be involved in any way. Um, otherwise, I've, got, I've collected stuff over time and uh, and we'll create a little Anzac Day ceremony and um, I think it'll be good. So more information about that to come. Right. Let's talk about America. Sounds good. Mm. Uh, how are we going? Are you going to bash America again? <laughs> I am. Yeah, you, you just you're going to kick them while they're down, aren't you? Yeah. Well, there's a great headline from the Shovel which said that uh, Mexico asked Trump to hurry up and build the fucking wall. So I, I reckon that's true. <laughs> build that wall because we they are going to be clamouring over it and trying to get into Mexico. Um, oh dear. <laughs> oh. Um, oh yeah. This this fake article from from. Uh, the shovel says, um, with the wall now three years overdue, many Mexicans were becoming increasingly anxious about having such a chaotic nation on their doorstep with no physical barrier. In a strongly worded statement, the Mexican president, um, uh, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, said he had had enough. Um, it's mayhem over there, totally out of control. What we can't have is thousands of Americans fleeing here without any consequences. We don't want to become a dumping ground for the US's problems. We need a proper border and we need it now. And here's the best bit. Let's get it built. We'll pay for it, he said. <laughs> oh, that is how Trump is getting Mexico. To, he's done it. He's actually done it. He's, he's getting um, the Mexicans to pay for the war. Uh, yeah. Right. Uh, look. Trump's been getting on for his press conferences and just um, giving complete lies as to what's happened, what potential remedies they've got, what they've been doing. It is they're just complete lies. And one day when the books and the movies come out and we find out everything that's been going on with this presidency, we will just be appalled at, at what he did and did not do. So. Yeah. Do you think he's being deliberately deceptive or do you think that he's just clueless? He is so concerned with the stock market and making money that he is trying to pump up the market because he doesn't want to see it fail and he'd be looking for opportunities for his mates to get deals uh, in terms of supplying some of the stuff that's needed. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so... And, and he's even pushing crackpot sort of um, uh, sort of remedies as well. So one of which is a drug which is used by people suffering from lupus, and now people with lupus can't get the drug because everybody's gone out and bought this drug that Trump's recommended. Sorry, Paul, you're going to say something? Yeah, are you saying that Trump is selling pot and crack for people to treat their lupus? Uh, crackpot ideas. Would be yes, that's what he's so, doing. So not yeah. crack and pot. No, no. <laughs> so, um, but having said all that, like you only have to watch his press conferences for a minute to recognise what a shambolic, dangerous man he is, 
Yet his approval rating been like that. His approval rating uh, is is increasing. So, fifty five percent of Americans approve of the president's management of the crisis, compared to forty three <laughs> who disapprove. What what hope wow. is there for that country? What hope is there for them? And of course, now he's 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 pitching it as a war against the coronavirus, and he's also pitching it as. China's fault and blaming China and calling it the China yeah. virus and people will fall for this. Um, it's just frightening. Meanwhile, on the other on the other side, Trevor, the Chinese are pushing the line that the the, the U.S. government deliberately carried the virus to China to infect Chinese people. So it goes both ways. Let's be fair. Yes, that's true. Saying. So, um, but, you know, I've seen Trump say it in press conferences. I haven't seen the Chinese say it in a press conference. Like, so I know Trump they said it. They say it, it for I, domestic, yeah. domestic consumption. Apparently yeah. I've seen reports that the Chinese in their, in their local, cons, you know, domestic media have claimed mm. that the U.S. Army transported the virus to Wuhan and released it to infect Chinese people. Yeah. So it, it just goes to show that we cannot trust despotic leaders from, from whichever stripe. Mm. Yeah. Oh, I had more on America, but they're so, just so, – sorry. No, I was just going to say we, it, it's, it's a good reason why we should be nurturing uh, humanism and liberal democracy yes. and not trusting any power-hungry power leaders – from wherever they come. Yeah. Of course, as we know, in America, uh, they've got some crazy preachers and evangel evangelical sort of nutcases running around there, and I've got some clips of the sorts of things that they've been saying. So at least with our religious leaders here, they're pretty quick to say, yep, let's cancel our gatherings of people because it's clearly dangerous despite uh, the good Lord watching over us as we... Uh, have our ceremonies, but over there in America, uh, their their preachers have still been recommending that people attend. Well, some of them have been recommending people attend their services. So I've got a little clip here. I'll just I'll just play that. Here we go. This Bible school is open because we're raising up revivalists, not pansies. Yes, they're 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 raising up revivalists, not pansies, and. They still want money from people, like they're big on getting their money from people. So here is uh, Paula White asking for more money. Churches do so much, not just from a humanitarian standpoint, but the greatest thing we do is bring spiritual truths that transform. What we do as ministers <laughs> of the gospel is so vitally important because every single day we are a hospital to the sick, not necessarily the physically sick, Though we also help take care of that. Many churches have health centers, etc. But we are a hospital for those who are soul sick, those who are spiritually sick, because we bring forth the word of God and we bring forth truth that gets deep down in your soul. Oh, I can't listen to any more. And just one little bit more from a guy who, um, who was insisting that people still pay their tithing. What are we going to do? I'm getting laid off at work. Hey, 
Your job's not your source. If it is, you're in trouble. <laughs> oh, dear. Jesus is your source. Jesus. Whatever you do oh, right now, Jesus. don't you stop tithing. Don't you stop tithing. Don't you no, stop sowing offerings. Well, stop. they won't let us go to church. Well, email it in there. Text the give or something, but you get your tithe in that church. If you have to go take it down there and drop it off in the, and stick it under the door or something, right, you right. get that tithe in that church. You get that offering in that church, and then you go home and you do what we're supposed to do. Yeah, that ma that man that man currently owns at least three or four, you know, pro uh, business jets for his own personal use. Yeah, well, he needs tithing to keep him fueled up. So yeah, that's right. Jet fuel isn't cheap. Yeah, it's just terrible that these guys um, uh, have some influence and say in what's going on over there. Right, just quickly, I wanted to talk about. Um, um well what what are our what are our fearless business leaders saying and so bill gates i think a clip's been going around where bill gates um basically warned of a pandemic have you seen that at all no, i haven't seen it right so i th i think uh i think i think it's basically um him saying well a pandemic is going to come and we uh, need to be prepared for it. But um, I've, I've got another clip from Bill Gates. I'll just play this one for you. Um. I've uh, paid over $10 billion in taxes. I paid more uh, than anyone in taxes. Uh, but I, you know, I'm glad to have paid, you know, if I'd had to pay $20 billion, it's fine. Uh, but, you know, when you say I should pay $100 billion, okay, then I'm right. starting to do a little math about uh, what I have left over. Sorry, uh, I'm just kidding. Well, I did the math, and if he paid $100 billion, he still had $10 billion left. Like, just, just please. Once you get it beyond a billion, you've reached the finish line. That's it. Absolutely no more. Stop. Stop. You don't get any more. That's it. What? Just one billion, Trevor. Yeah, That's well, a bit. Yeah, bit just one. Yeah, exactly. Like here he is. Oh, if I paid a hundred billion, I'm doing the math. Well, fuck. If you did paid a hundred billion, still have ten billion left. Like, uh, so I I don't care about his clip that he that he predicted a pandemic when he's not prepared to pay for stuff to actually fix the pandemic that's going to come. So, uh, also, you know, we heard lots of talk from our. Um, business leaders offering some money with the bushfires and things like that, and I poo-pooed it at the time as being just uh, a drop in the ocean. But um, just to give you some idea of the calibre of the business leaders in Australia, here is Jerry Harvey on 60 Minutes. It's not the Spanish flu that killed 15 million people just after the First World War. You know, why are we so scared about getting this virus? There's pretty much nothing to get scared of. Well, try telling that to thousands of Italian families and Chinese families. And but that's there. We're here. I'm 80. I should be really scared. Guess what? I'm not really scared. Well, you're in the worst category. I know. I'm a, I'm a sitting duck. If you get If it, I never see you again, it's been nice knowing you. <laughs> I, I admire your optimism, but it's, not, it's really not funny. But, but, but to me, I've got to be positive. I've got to 80 years of age, I've had a wonderful life, and I think to myself, I'm just going to keep going. 
Woz keeps harping on that we could trust. He'd rather have billionaires deciding how to spend money because he reckons he's better at this, better at spending it than than governments would be. He doesn't want them taxed and for governments to work it out. He wants them to do their philanthropy because they're better managers of the money and they'll get a better deal. Nutcases like that. Please, let's... Yeah, but yeah, I, I don't think we can assume all that all business leaders are as loony as Jerry Harvey. No, we can't, but he's an example. So, um, so there we he's go. He's just one. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, uh, look, what, what was is probably probably right in a, in a lot of cases, but p- perhaps not in every case. Obviously. Mm. Anyway, gentlemen, I think the main theme that I wanted to get was what we got through at the beginning, which was uh, there is potentially a shift in the way people think about government and its role, and the idea that in fact uh, there is such a thing as a society and the common good, and that investing in that is actually important and sort of scaling back government and and community resources so that every everybody can operate on an individualist um, level uh, is being played out, that experiment, right now. We'll see how it works and we're going to just sit back and unfortunately watch the United States of America fall into some sort of dystopian... Um, future that you'd normally only read about in a science fiction novel. Um, we'll see. Um, oh, Murray talks about Bezos. Yeah, but Jeff Bezos um, with Amazon as well has called for people to provide money for Amazon workers and he started a fund. But the richest man in the world is asking other people to donate to a fund for his employees. It's just, yeah, anyway. Um, I got distracted. It's It'll be interesting to see the shift in society and what this means in terms of uh, a recognition of of resources for government and for the greater good and where we end up as a result. So we'll be watching with interest over the next weeks, as will everybody else. So sorry, everyone, it was a little bit stilted. We're going to work on this technology stuff and so I can actually see the guys, which makes it interesting. We'll work on that in the meantime. And if you've got any Anzac Day suggestions, let us know and uh, we'll all talk to you next week. So bye for now. Thanks for tuning in. Bye now. Bye, everyone. But something has to be done to try to educate the country to understand that paying $10 to a private corporation is worse than paying $5 in taxes. Uh, The hatred of taxes that's been engendered here is a remarkable fact. So there's plenty of people who are scared of rising taxes to pay for, you know, health care for all, uh, and would prefer to pay twice that much to private insurers uh, who, you know, cut them off at the pass when they need uh, support and so on. It's an astonishing fact, and it it tells you something about the way the ideological system here has fostered the that should be understood. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, first up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing 
something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said and when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode and really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to, I think, $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe... You really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners and that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.